Today on the Free Marketeers podcast, we are discussing the medium-term budget policy statement. All of that right after this. Good afternoon, everyone. Chris here with another Free Marketeers live stream. We are discussing matters of great financial import today after what's been a very interesting year to say the least to see how the new finance minister is handling his budget commitments and to help me analyze the uh, first budget speech by minister Gordon Guana we have Becky Machlobo from the center for risk analysis Becky how are you hi Chris thanks for having me on I believe this was my first experience uh, appearance on, on FMF so I'm quite excited to be here and no, uh, awesome. the first of many um, yeah hopefully first of many <laughs> yeah let's see let's I'll see how controversial you can get discussing a budget so. uh i promise i'll behave i'm such a nice guy uh, i don't really <laughs> say anything controversial <laughs> but i do say the objective truth though and some oh, okay. no, well, sometimes the well. truth is controversial so exactly <laughs> so why don't we start off with just your like your overall overall impressions i mean i think we always we expect maybe silver bullets or things from different finance ministers. Um, right. I thought it was interesting, the sort of line that the minister struck in general, but just your first impressions of, of the speech, as it were. Yeah, so Chris, just going in and the anticipation of uh, the statement uh, that was made by Enoch Rangana today, I did expect him to mention the fact that there's been an increase in revenue collection largely due to commodity uh, prices. Uh, South Africa is a commodity exporting country. So whenever we see a commodity rally, we see that there is an increase in the, it, it, there's a trade surplus, which leads to appreciation in the rand, as well as increase in government revenue collection. Uh, that figure is about 120 billion, uh, which is better than the February by, uh, uh, number. So I did, he, my impressions of the statement today is that he didn't say anything that was populist necessarily. He was calm. Uh, he was trying to calm the market rather than mentioning any form of uh, populist policies as well as inc massive increase in government expenditure. And then to sort of delve into it in a bit more detail, the GDP growth forecast, I think, I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong here, but I thought it was was something like 5% for this year. I mean, that's from yeah. a very low base last low year, base, but then I think, base, yeah. yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so uh, he projects that the uh, South African economy for this year will reach largely like about 5.9%, which is about 6%. Uh, that's largely due to the low base effect uh, coming from last year's con massive contraction of about negative 6.4%. Uh, and then next year, he projected GDP to be about 4.9%. I believe that's optimistic. But what's interesting is this three-year average for the next three years, which sits about a 1.7%. Now, Chris, that's actually quite interesting, is that if you recall during this week, we had a lot of uh, analysts, economists, stating that he'll be strong on mentioning reforms in the country. But then why, if, if there are really reforms, such as spectrum release, a reduction in red tape that businesses face, why would he then project a, a GDP figure of 1.7%? That's far lower compared to what we see in emerging markets of about four, uh, 3 to 4%. Yeah, it's always interesting to see the 
what lies behind these grandiose statements. I, I thought at first, yeah. in, in sort of the first 10 minutes or so, 15 minutes of his speech, it almost sounded like a sonar. He was touching yeah. a lot of policy points and that kind of thing. And I was like, mm, yeah. I don't know if this is the right format for this sort of thing. But as you say, <laughs> the spectrum point, he talked about Transnet and the railways. Yeah. For example, yeah. they're going to allow private uh, businesses to use the, the railways. I thought that was noteworthy. What do you think of the SOEs? Because I thought he, I mean, given government and they're, they're all, they believe in the developmental state and that stuff. I thought he was quite harsh on the SOEs and that. They won't necessarily be bailouts. I'm not saying they're going to stick to that, but right, right. Uh, I did think that is a, a valid point to also note, in which he said that there will be no new financing uh, for SOEs. But he did mention that there will be a continued uh, get loan guarantee to these SOEs. So, in other words, they'll still give them money to pay off their debt obligations. Um, but what I find quite uh, interesting there, Chris, is that he does not really touch on what the country needs. You know, a lot of experts, even him himself, realize that there's a massive decline in electricity generation in the country. And here I'm talking about uh, ESCOM. But there's no mention of actually talking about the policies actually needed that would increase capacity in the country. Uh, he did mention uh, uh, green energy and so forth, which at this point <laughs> is quite a pipe dream. Uh, as we currently uh, sit here, Nick, is, uh, ESCOM has about 46 uh, gigawatts of capacity, of which demand is close to 30%. And before we got downgraded to stage two load shedding, we were at stage four, there were about 20 uh, giga gigawatts out of, uh, offline. So that resulted in stage four load shedding. Now, according to the integrated resource plan in the next 10 years, government intends to decommission about 11,000 megawatts of coal, which would mean that if all things remain equal, uh, electricity generation in the next 10 years will be lower than what it is currently. So that's why I state that uh, green energy, as well as investment in in, 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 in the generation of uh, solar, hydro, and, and so forth, is a pipe dream at this moment. Uh, so nothing really substantial in terms of reforms in SOEs. In other words, allowing the private sector to come in, uh, privatizing the electricity grid. Uh, so yeah, nothing substantial in there. Not to be facetious, but South Africa is taking its decarbonization very seriously with our loading that we're implementing. So no one can say we aren't taking the the COP agreement <laughs> as it should yeah. be taken. Um, and I honestly wouldn't be surprised if, for example, he caves towards pressure. He caves towards right. ANC members in terms of bailing out SOEs. Um, uh, that would not come at a surprise at all. In fact, he also mentioned the fact that uh, they, they, he will, uh, at this point, he doesn't see the, uh, them increasing social grants or expanding social grants that needs to be announced by Parliament. Uh, I uh, think he might cave to trade unions' demands. Uh, the, uh, this week, he was heavily pressured by trade unions in order to introduce a universal basic income grant for the ages of 18 to 59 there. Speaking of a, a basic income grant or another form of grant, if you, you know, as a classical liberal, you wouldn't necessarily want to be put in this position. But if you had to choose a form of a grant or something, let's say by next year, February, is there anything to you that would fit well into the budget that wouldn't necessarily burden future generations that would actually work well? Is there anything at all that can that one can wrap one's head around? If we could only afford it, I think, okay. uh, for example, if the government actually did have savings, did have a budget surplus, uh, had half its debt levels than what it had currently, then I would see a universal basic income grant being um, 
being tabled uh, at this point with our massive debt levels, even though they've been revised lower, which they currently sit at about 70%. Uh, the trend line is what's important here, Chris, and the trend line is upward. Uh, we cannot afford a universal basic income grant. You know, at this point, he did mention that we have about 27 million South Africans that are receiving social grants. That's more than the, what we have in the number of people that are employed in the country. Uh, and that's a huge problem, is that you need to increase the number of people employed. And you can only increase that by implementing growth-enhancing reforms uh, that are also friendly to businesses as well as investment levels. That's what the ANC is unwilling to touch on. They quite... Uh, happy to mention that we have a massive uh, uh, number of people that are receiving social grants. Not so much at actually talking about the people that are employed. And that's a huge problem. I wanted to ask you a bit about the, the debt to GDP ratio. What is the yeah. news on that front? And why is that? I mean, I know this one can go into economics points ad nauseum, but why is that so important trying to get that ratio down? Yeah, so just a bit of context here, is, I think is also quite important. And here I want to touch on the forgotten story. Uh, as, as we currently speak here, uh, Chris, the GDP, debt to GDP is currently sitting at 70%. About 10 years ago, it was at 25%. Uh, and about 10 years previous to that, it was sitting at 40%. Now, how it got halved from 1994 until 2007, that was the early years of the ANC under the leadership of Nelson Mandela and Tabumbeki. And at the time, the finance minister was Trevor Manuel. Uh, such policies such as GEAR, which resulted in high GDP growth levels in the country, averaging about three to 5%, an increase in government revenue and a decline in government expenditure led to a budget surplus between the years of 2004 and 2007, unachieved in a hundred years. Subsequent to that period, uh, we had a change of the way of thinking within cabinets. Uh, from uh, growth-enhancing policies to redistributive policies, as well as a ballooning civil service wage bill, bailouts on SOEs under Praveen Gordon, and where we find ourselves today with a GDP debt-to-GDP ratio of about 70%. So the reason why that's a risk, Chris, is that it works the same way as a household. When you have massive amounts of debt levels, you, you, your risk increases, so banks charge you a higher interest rate. And that's exactly what we're seeing in the country. South Africa has high uh, debt servicing costs when you compare it to the emerging market. Uh, in fact, as we currently speak right now, Chris, debt servicing costs are currently sitting at 260 billion rands, which makes it the second most expensive uh, line item in the budget, uh, which the first being education. That takes away money that could be spent on such things such as policing, such things such as healthcare. And in fact, in the next three years, it's projected to be above 300 billion. That would make it close to what we spend towards education, close to it being the number one thing that we spend uh, uh, in the country. Sorry, I had a motorbike gunning past my house, <laughs> so I just had to turn no put on the, the mute for a bit. Um, about how does it? Ex how would the latest bout of load shedding have? have factored into the speech today or is it too recent to really factor into the current sort of uh, GDP picture, that sort of thing? Or do you think the minister would have quote unquote priced it in? I know that's not the right term, but you know. Mm. Well, in terms of load shading, well, load shading has been a problem uh, for numerous amounts of years. And it is something, even if they were, we didn't have load shading this week, 
electricity generation in this country is still a huge problem. Right. Uh, in fact, when you look at energy availability factor, the indicator that ESCOM uh, puts out on a weekly basis, which measures the proportion of electricity generated by ESCOM and sent out to the South African economy, that has massively declined uh, in 10 years. In 2011, that was sitting at about 85%. Now it's currently sitting at about 57%. Massive drop. And breakdowns, which is measured by unplanned outreach factors, uh, has increased dramatically from 6% in 2011 to where it currently is now at 30%. It's unbelievable. So taking that into consideration, that has capped GDP performance in the country to about 1%, which is in line with this three-year average figure. So even though we do not, we, let's say, for example, hypothetically speaking, we do not have load shading going into the local elections and going into this week, electricity generation in the country is on a massive decline. And this is something that the ANC government is unwilling to address because from their perspective, they think that they have a corruption issue. And sure, there's a corruption issue in the country, but really what's the issue here, Chris? This is something that I've also noted in some of your writings is that there is an ideological issue in ANC. The way of thinking uh, is, is very flawed and it's detrimental to the South African economy. I wanted to get your thoughts on the commodities point, which you mentioned in the introduction, and just why one can't always sort of rely on that. So because South Africa is so strong with certain precious metals and, and resources of that nature, why can't we sort of ride that that wave for forever? Because it comes in cycles. Uh, okay. Uh, because it comes in cycles, the reason why it led to the commodity rally recently is largely because of the increase in demand. Well, okay. there's a, we just came from lockdown levels in the world, so you saw an increase in demand as well as supply issues, which led to commodity prices uh, increasing dramatically. Uh, certain, uh, for example, if you look at uh, certain commodities, they've increased about 80%. Uh, coal, uh, gold, platinum. As well, uh, yeah. So South Africa benefits a lot when we ever see, whenever we see an appreciation in those commodities. But that's not sustainable. We know it's, we don't see that increase in those commodities for a long period of time. That's why it would not be sustainable if, for example, National Treasury commits to long-term uh, projects based on of the short-term increase in those commodities. And that's something that uh, he noted in today's statement. But the question then is, will he then cave towards trade unions? Uh, demands in February, and I think that is likely. To ask you another question in the sort of political line, um, he, Minister Godongwana went out of his way <clears throat> to point out that he and former Minister Mboweni are on the same wavelength. Mm. Do you think, yeah, now I'm putting you as the CRA guy on the spot, <laughs> because does this indicate that there's a bit of a stronger reform wind within the ANC and some of them are agreeing about being more centrist? Or do you think, you know, it's just going to flip flop kind of thing? Yeah. So one thing that I'd like to describe the ANC as is that they're very good at uh, deception, not as well as that of reflection. Uh, he may position himself as a reformer. It's in fact, uh, Sir Ramaphosa himself positioned himself as a reformer. The media glorifies as Ramaphosa as a, as a reformer, but he hasn't made any substantial gains in terms of reforms in the country. And unfortunately, Enoch, if you recall last year, he was a major proponent of prescribed assets, uh, pushing forward that uh, private pension funds should be then used to 
invest in government infrastructure projects. And I think that's a huge risk that we need to also consider here, is that once state coffers then begin to run dry, as we see with this massive deficit level, which is very high, uh, we might then see the finance minister then start to mention such things as prescribed assets, forcing private funds to invest in government infrastructure projects. And it's not to say that this money will actually go towards infrastructure. Uh, there's a lot of people in between. There's a lot of ANC cadres that needs to also get their money. Uh, so unfortunately, uh, this this I, I don't particularly see these, these funds going towards infrastructure, rather, rather into the pockets of the cadres. I think that's that's pretty accurate. Um, so the, our currency extended its gains this afternoon. Um, what does that tell you? I guess both about local sort of investors and foreign investors. Yeah, so I did expect that. I did that. Um, so the the thing is that Enoch didn't really say anything that would shock the market. He was trying to calm the market. That's my key takeaway with what he said today. Uh, so, in fact, the currency has been appreciating for some time, like we mentioned that point largely due to commodities. And I wouldn't particularly imagine him to say anything uh, shocking that would then lead to the RAND weakening. There was a bit of a mention of assistance for... <clears throat> Sorry. No problem. I also need water, man. <laughs> I don't think it's COVID. I don't know what it is. I've got some... <laughs> No um, just assistance for businesses that suffered during the violence and the looting. Do you think it was enough that was announced? Or, I mean, we, we don't particularly as liberals want government to spend and spend and spend. Yeah. But if that yeah. sort of thing happens, is there an argument, argument to be made for sort of prior, prioritizing government spending? I guess you could make an argument like that. But the issue with it is that the ANC never really addresses the core issues that led to those riots, such as the decline in, in living standards in the country. In fact, before the riots, we've actually flagged for our clients about seven times uh, due to a decline in service delivery, a decline in uh, living standards in the country. We've seen an increase in the number of people that are economically excluded. You can see this by looking at unemployment levels in the country. Those people uh, express their frustrations by, uh, by protests. In fact, since 2007, until the latest figure today, violent protests in the country has increased by 400%. So unless the ANC really addresses those core issues, such as economic uh, exclusion, which can only be solved by growing the South African economy, unfortunately, they're not really uh, addressing um, uh, the, the issues that businesses face because the businesses are the ones that suffer, uh, such as what you saw with the July riots particularly retail in that in that month. For all the talk of the commodities boom, I'm just wondering how much, um, and you, you don't necessarily have to give a specific figure, but how much revenue, potential revenue was lost because of the alcohol and tobacco bans. Mm. Um, or would that, or would that have already been sort of factored into the February budget delivered by Minister Mbawain? If, if my memory serves correct, SARS did say that they lost close to 200 billion, if not 200 okay. billion, due to the uh, ban on alcohol sales as well as uh, uh, tobacco ban. Uh, so there's definitely an opportunity cost. I think you, there's a very important point that you touched there that policymakers seem to ignore, and that's the opportunity um, cost of, of banning, for example, alcohol as well as that of cigarettes. They could have had more they could have had more money essentially 
than what they do right now. I found it noteworthy that every now and then the minister struck a bit of a jovial tone. I don't know if he was yeah. uh, who he was joking with or not. And every now and then the camera also panned to Minister uh, Gwede Mantashe, <laughs> um, especially yeah. around the green energy um, yeah. point. Um, but I wanted to ask you about the because he made a he made a real point of bringing up the anti anti poor argument and how people say yeah. this is an austerity budget. So in your view. Yeah. I mean, is it an austerity budget and why do you think he, do you think the government is that concerned with perception, like being anti-poor, well, when all their policies are anti-poor? Yeah, their, their policies are anti-poor. I don't think they really, um, I, don't really, I don't think they really care much. In, they do like the perception that they're doing something. That's why they mentioned the key words such as reform, structural reform, spectral release, a reduction in business in, uh, investment. They don't want to shock the market. They don't want to scare investors. The interesting thing about the ANC is that they want an increase in investment levels, but they still pursue policies such as expropriation of property without compensation. Uh, so those are mutually annihilating uh, ideas that they have, but they're still pursuing both of them. So I do agree. They probably do like the perception that they're doing something to take care of the poor, the poor but the actual actions are Quite to the are quite contrary to their intentions. On this point of of electricity, and we we touched on the load shedding question, but I want to ask you: Do you have you and your colleagues have research or analysis that points to um, the increase to one hundred megawatts of self generation? Is that is that actually helping, or is is the other stuff sort of still hindering it in a way? It's not enough. It's unfortunately yeah. not enough. Uh, if you recall, in order for Ramposa um, to actually push for that, in fact, Gwede Mandashi to push for that, uh, the country had to be close to a complete breakdown of the <laughs> fiasco. Uh, so this is an interesting point, is that a lot of uh, analysts would say that this is going in the right direction. We see these reforms, such as uh, allowing private producers to uh, essentially produce electricity for up to 100 megawatts. but what I see within the ANC is that they're quite reluctant to do the necessary things that would see the country grow according to what we see with other emerging markets. Uh, in order for them to pursue those reforms, they need to be face extreme pressure. And I think that's what happened with, with, with Sir Ramaphosa. He faced extreme pressure and then he had to turn the hands of Gwedem Mandashi. In fact, a lot of, uh, Chris, we agree here on the issues here. Even some of ANC officials agree what the core issues are, but they are unwilling to do what's necessary. Um, tell me a bit about what other countries are doing that you think could have been included in this sort of speech in what direction or policies or could be included in February. So you keep, you keep every now and then mentioning our peer countries. One hopes that as countries head out of COVID, investors are going to look for, for places to where they can get yeah. returns on their investment. So what can South yeah. Africa, maybe in February, indicate that would really bring in that investment? Mm, there's nothing. I wish I honestly had good news. I feel like I'm a broken record tailing. I know. I mean, ah, the sun will turn black. There'll be no lights at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> but just objectively speaking, what other countries are doing, Chris, that South Africa is going quite the opposite. There's that they're not fundamentally undermining property rights, which okay. the current government is doing. I mean, it's quite simple. If if I want to take a risk and invest in a country, I need to have 
a certainty that my property will be not will not be expropriated and investors don't have that certainty here in south africa that's what's happening in other countries is that in other countries they're guaranteeing that level of certainty of course there are concerns in terms of when you're talking about the monetary policies that much of this world uh, that much of the developed world is doing such as printing more money to solve the issues and that has also uh, bites them in terms of inflation uh, every week was a new inflation story i think two weeks ago it was the case of fertilizers beca uh, becoming too expensive um so unfortunately um what's what what the country is currently going in the wrong direction in terms of fundamentally undermining property rights which other emerging markets are not doing this is a bit of a meta question you can sort of choose which countries to highlight but just looking forward sort of the next six months what mm. what international trends could impact on South Africa's sort yeah. of fiscal situation yeah. by you know the time the minister delivers his next uh, address? Yeah. So if you what's happening around the world is that a lot of central banks are mentioning tapering. In other words, reducing uh, the amount of government bonds that they purchase, as well as increasing interest rates. In other words, there'll be less money sloshing around Wall Street. There'll be less money sloshing around. Uh, much of the developed world and so what then happens is that investors then take away their money from places they de that they deem uh, risky such as south africa that would then result in the south african 10-year bond yield to then increase right the 10-year bond yields you can view it as the cost of servicing uh, south african debt south africa has the highest yields compared to other countries our yields are close to 10 percent the U.S. is close to zero percent. In fact, other countries such as Germany have negative yields. So investors have been getting a high premium on the South African bonds. But the cost of that is that South Africa has high debt servicing costs in terms of servicing that cost. Uh, that means that we have less money to spend on uh, education. We have less money to spend on healthcare, policing. Uh, so that's the unfortunate risk is that we might actually start to see interest rates in the country then increasing making it more expensive for the government to service its debt. And the government would then need funds to plug uh, uh, that expenditure. And unfortunately, it would result in increasing in some way or form of uh, taxes, which negatively impact the average South African. What about a VAT increase? Do you see that on the horizon? Uh, no, that would be <laughs> a VAT increase would immediately, the media would be on Enoch's uh, face and say you are against the poor. Okay. Uh, so I don't see a VAT increase. What I do see is some form of an increase in terms of a wealth tax, uh, exchange controls, for example, in terms of pensioners moving abroad. This year, we had actually a massive in, uh, a skill uh, shortage of people just simply going in other countries. Uh, if you recall, remote working has allowed a lot of South Africans to work anywhere around the world. And some of them have chose to then pack up their bags, take their money and go in other countries. I think this is a particular lane that... Uh, national treasury could have a look at in terms of looking in terms of exchange controls trying to get revenue if i had to ask you to give minister gordon guana a sort of grade as it were um yeah. and your scale can be from one to five one to ten one to a hundred it can be five yeah. stars on a scale of stars kind of thing like a wrestling match oh yeah what do you think you would give him for his first sort of budget speech I would most probably give him a four, uh, but out of 10. I do out of ten. I'll give him a four out of ten. 
Uh, I had an interesting uh, conversation with a colleague of mine, Gabriel Krauser, yesterday, if it wasn't the day before, in which if there's anything in which a new finance minister or a new CEO, in this particular case, Andy Dureta, should do in terms of improving the situation in the country, you should go out with a bang. You should mention that uh, state-owned enterprises are draining the fiscus, expropriation of our properties uh, fundamentally a uh, uh, risk factor in, towards South African e economic activity. And I didn't see that. He didn't touch on those points. He was quite shallow. He mentioned uh, key words in order to uh, relieve the stress of the market, but nothing really substantial. So I'd give him a four out of 10. All right, that's being quite generous. Don't say you're always pessimistic like that. I think that's quite generous. Huh? <laughs> well, what would you give him? <laughs> I thought maybe like a two. Uh, I mean, <laughs> like I was, I, I said he was as radically pragmatic as I thought he would be. And yeah. those two things are sort of a contradiction in terms maybe, but I thought he, yeah, I, 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 I at least expected a basic income grant. Yeah. Like I also like the thing that I'm seeing within the NC is that who, who else is a better option uh, that President Cyril had besides Tishabuani? There's like no one else besides him. Like, uh, he had no other option available to him. Yeah, they could have uh, brought back Van Royen. <laughs> they could have. They could have. But uh, they they don't have anyone that right. uh, has a strong uh, uh, intellectual ability, that has a strong um, uh, way of thinking to, to actually do the things that this country actually needs. Yeah. And even if they do have the intellectual sort of ammunition you wonder about the will yeah the, the willingness will exactly. to let go no. exactly i mean we have numbers just estimating how much of the nec is favorable towards reform measures and about 80 percent of them are unfavorable uh the remaining amount we simply just don't know uh we used to have an individual that was favorable towards reform that was Tito. we think we were largely, largely friendly towards him but after him we largely don't see anyone that's favorable towards reform they use these keywords such as spectrum release and so forth, but nothing really substantial. This is just a bit of a technical question, but how, or if at all, does the national budget impact on municipalities, metros, that kind of thing, just in light of the local government elections and this possibility now of, of uh, coalitions and that sort of thing, does, will this have any impact on, on the, how those things play out? So the actions of the National Treasury should in no way uh, impact uh, government elections and so forth. But a point of pause was the delay in, in the budget, in, in the right. statement. Um, the statement was delayed by a week, largely due to elections, and it was supposed to be held in October. Uh, I don't think there's particular malice behind this. I just think that perhaps they didn't uh, uh, actually prepare enough, and that's why they delayed. But in terms of it, the, there is some level of influence. The ANC is currently seeing that they're below 50%. They, the support is waning. So they might then try to push for populist measures, such as a universal basic income grant, in order to gain support in the 2024 elections. That does impact the budget quite negatively, in fact, when you look at government expenditure, which is already high. Uh, so that's that's the form of uh, 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 influence that I have. In terms of municipalities, uh, really, it's just uh, it's really the allocations of the funds. Uh, not much on, yeah, not much on anything else. Yeah. If you'll indulge me, a uh, peering into the crystal ball question. 
Yeah. And this is something that you guys obviously do very well at CRA and also at the Institute of Race Relations. What do you think of the 2024 elections? Obviously, you know, is it too early to call? Can you give us some of your early sort of uh, well, the thing is, I don't know, ideas? Uh, yeah, the thing is, it's, we already called it. In fact, we called it right. in 2012, Chris. Uh, <laughs> we called it uh, uh, the first mention of an ANC decline, uh, ANC losing its majority. I was in high school in the 10th grade, and that call was made by Dr. Franz Kumia. And, and that was taken by, that was an institutional call. And the reason uh, behind that call, it was not done in a reckless manner. It was done because they looked at social economic indicators such as what we have uh, talked about, uh, increase in protests, a decline in, in living standards in the country. And then they were able to see that a lot of a large proportion of South Africans are losing confidence in the ANC. That's why you see a large proportion of South Africans choosing not to vote. In the previous election, we had about 70% of people in the country that are able to vote simply choosing not to vote. So those indicators then give you a sense of what will then happen in the 20, uh, 2024 elections. And our call, which we made in 2012, is that we will see an ANC dip below 50% and then lose its majority. So your projection was already a few, a few. It years was already, <laughs> it was 10 years ago. And uh, yeah, um, a lot of analysts actually critiqued the Institute at the time saying that it was crazy to make this prediction. Uh, that's because the Institute did what they didn't do. And they simply looked at the data. Now that that data story was then told. Oh, who would have thought that looking at the data can actually help you try and figure out how things are gonna, <laughs> how things are gonna shape out. Uh, Becky, any sort of parting thoughts or pearls of wisdom that you want to leave us to chew over? Obviously, people can go and like read through the specific line items and all the figures and whatever if they want more details. But anything that you wanted to leave us with? Um. Things that I wanted to truly leave you with is um, what's I find what's the the ANC's response towards last week's election quite interesting. There hasn't been a form of a bang uh, or uh, saying like uh, uh, still continuing with its populist agenda, which I still do believe that they will next year and so forth. But it's been actually quite interesting that the decline in in ANC support is really not being reflected by ANC officials. Instead, they're still carrying on uh, and, and not really reflecting upon themselves. So that would largely culminate in an ANC defeat in 2024. If they choose to continue with the policies, and I've seen no indications that they will revert towards growth enhancing policies, then I guess my key um, uh, points that I would leave your, and I would like to leave your audience is that we actually will see a continual decline of ANC support um, which might be chaotic in the short term, actually. Um, but we'll see which party then comes and, and gains that majority. It might be a coalition, as we now see with certain municipalities in the country. Yeah, let us not say we don't live in interesting times, so we can't yeah. complain about, <laughs> about that. Uh, Becky, thanks very much for helping us unpack all this stuff. It's a lot of numbers and data, but you really helped us uh, understand what's, what went on today. So thank you for your time. Uh, thank you for having me, Chris. Hopefully you have me again. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll have you on again very soon. Uh, to the viewers and listeners, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Before you leave, please remember, remember to like the video. And if you haven't yet, also subscribe to our channel. 
I also recommend that you go and check out the Center for Risk Analysis YouTube channel and website. I've linked to those in the description below. I hope all of you have a good weekend and we'll talk to you all again very soon. Until next time, take care. Bye-bye.